From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Most of us like to believe we can trust the police, but not everyone goes into law enforcement for the greater good. Some enter the police academy because they crave power over others, and what better job than policing offers this power? I believe most police officers are good, and a few are bullies. John Patrick Addis, though, was the worst kind of police officer. He was a monster with a badge. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. The Alaska State Troopers have been the investigative agency for many of the cases I've covered in my podcast episodes. If you've listened to several episodes, you might have noticed I've repeatedly referred to some of the troopers. Alaska State Trooper homicide investigator Jim McCann investigated many high-profile murder cases in Alaska during his 25 years as a state trooper. McCann helped solve several of the cases I profiled, including the Sophie Sergi murder in a Fairbanks College dorm. McCann also appears in this episode, but this time he is a witness, not an investigator. If McCann, with all his investigative skills, could not detect the monster beside him, how could anyone else have identified the evil in John Patrick Addis? Addis hid his dark side well, and revealed it only to those closest to him. Born in Flint, Michigan in 1950, John Patrick Addis loved to hunt and fish. He grew into a big muscular man with blonde hair and green eyes. By all accounts, Addis was talented and brilliant. He played the French horn, piano, and guitar. He excelled at sports and maintained good grades. He did not drink or take drugs, and he ran, did sit-ups, and lifted weights to keep his body in shape. John liked science and expressed an interest in studying medicine. He enrolled in college and worked as a lab technician. He married his first wife, Jody, and the pair initially planned to settle in Michigan and raise their family. For some reason, though, Addis suddenly rejected college and decided he really wanted to hunt and fish and live in the wilderness. He gave Jody little say in the matter, and the couple moved to Sitka, Alaska. Addis began his law enforcement career as the Sitka City Dog Catcher, but he soon worked his way up the ranks, and he joined the Alaska State Troopers in 1974. Addis was first assigned to Fort Yukon in northern Alaska and then transferred to Fairbanks in the mid-1970s. John and Jody had four children during their 11-year marriage, and John doted on his kids and spent as much time as possible with them. 
Addis was an avid outdoorsman and bush pilot who could survive long periods on his own in the frigid Alaska wilderness. When he lived in Fort Yukon, he loved flying his Cessna through the Brooks Range in northern Alaska. The Alaska State Troopers patrol vast amounts of sparsely populated territory over challenging terrain and often in adverse weather conditions. It is vital for the troopers to know each other well, to bond, and to have each other's backs in a tense situation. John's fellow officers immediately liked him and embraced him as one of their own. Alaska State Trooper Sergeant Jim McCann worked with John Addis for several years when they were both stationed in Fairbanks, and the two became good friends. When interviewed by author Glenn Pewitt for his book, Ghost, McCann remembered Addis as a big, muscular guy with a brilliant mind. McCann and other fellow troopers noted John's strange lifestyle. Instead of moving to Fairbanks with all its modern comforts, John Addis seemed intent on living the way Alaskans survived decades earlier. He moved Jody and their children to a tiny one-room cabin outside of Fairbanks. The cabin had a dirt floor, no running water, and only intermittent electricity from a small generator. They had to haul water and use an outhouse even when the temperature dropped to 50 degrees below zero. With no washing machine, Jody washed their clothes in a tub, scrubbing them on a washboard. Jody, who was a registered nurse, could have had a good career, but Addis did not want her to work. He wanted her to stay home with the kids. Addis made friends with the other troopers, who described him as affable and outgoing. When they were off duty, John and one or two of his trooper buddies often went flying and hunting together. Fellow troopers considered Addis to be a brilliant investigator with a strong work ethic and a sharp focus for detail. Addis encouraged several of his fellow officers to exercise with him, and they jogged and lifted weights at the trooper barracks. John, who was an excellent marksman, also spent a great deal of time at the shooting range, and he and McCann helped form a SWAT team for the troopers. According to McCann, Addis's crime scene investigative skills were his most significant contribution to the troopers. When Addis first joined the Alaska State Troopers, the organization had no crime scene lab, so he and McCann worked to improve their forensic techniques and to develop a police protocol for major homicide investigations. The two troopers read books and took college classes to enhance their skills in collecting evidence. Addis practiced techniques to identify and collect hair and fiber samples, studied blood spatter evidence, and learned how to read patterns from shotgun stippling to determine how far away a gun was from a body when it fired. John often took his oldest daughters flying in his plane. To outsiders, the Addis family seemed happy. But years later, Jody admitted their family life was not as good as it appeared. When they were alone, John exerted his control over the family and particularly over Jody, attempting to manage every facet of her life. Over time, John's fellow troopers noticed chinks in John's armor. 
he insisted straight-faced to his friends that he often saw little humans he called the thems. And in the early 1980s, his controlling behavior over Jody became more evident to his colleagues. He called Jody mother and ordered her around as if he were her boss. Jody later admitted John abused her, both verbally and physically, sometimes choking her until she nearly lost consciousness. She said the abuse began soon after she and John moved to Alaska. In addition to the physical abuse, John would not allow her to drive, work outside the home, or even to have friends. He also told her to sever ties with her family because they did not care about her. He wanted her to feel isolated, helpless, and utterly dependent upon him. In early 1982, not long after the birth of their fourth child, Jody decided she needed to get away from John, and she filed for divorce. John bitterly fought for custody of their children and told Jody if she did not give him custody, he would load the kids in his plane, fly to the Brooks Range, and crash the plane into the side of a mountain. In the end, Jody won custody of the children, but the court allowed John liberal visitation with the children during the school year and custody for up to six weeks each summer. Despite her feelings toward her ex-husband, Jody knew her kids loved their father and wanted to spend time with him. She worried, though, about John having control over the kids for six weeks each year. She knew John hated her, and she wondered what he might do. After Jody divorced him, Addis began to withdraw from his friends at work and no longer seemed interested in his job. Those around him believed once he lost control over Jody and his kids, John began to unravel and lose his grip on sanity. A few hopeful signs, though, suggested John was moving forward with his life. He met a woman named Sarah, who worked at the Fairbanks office of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Addis treated Sarah and her children well, and soon the pair announced they were engaged. They married in December 1982. A short while later, Addis surprised his colleagues when he abruptly quit the state troopers and told them he had decided to return to medical school. He showed everyone a letter of acceptance from the dean of a medical school in Florida, and soon afterward, he and Sarah moved to Florida. Five months later, Sarah divorced Addis and returned to Fairbanks. She did not want to talk about what happened in Florida. But John's former friends believed John started doing the same things to Sarah he had done to Jody. Soon, those in Fairbanks learned John never went to medical school when he moved to Florida. The letter of acceptance was fake. Sarah revealed that during their brief marriage, John often disappeared for weeks at a time and refused to tell her where he'd gone. She said he was obsessed with having his children live with him, and he told her he planned to steal his children. He asked Sarah if she would help him kidnap his kids, but she said no. She refused to help him, and she tried to talk him out of committing a serious crime. A few months after Sarah left, John Addis began dating a woman named Tony, and a short while later, he married Tony. Tony, a pharmacist in Sarasota, Florida, said Addis swept her off her feet with his romantic gestures and devoted interest in her. 
In September 1985, the couple had a daughter. Addis told Tony he planned to kidnap his children, and she said it was a terrible idea, and she wanted no part of it. Not long after the birth of their daughter, Addis began to exert his control over Tony. He wanted to know where she was every minute of the day, and when she went to work, he either followed her or he checked her car's odometer so he'd know how far she drove during the day. As time wore on, John became physically violent toward Tony. She said he sometimes grabbed her and pinned her down so she couldn't move, and once he pushed her against a wall and lifted her off her feet with his hands around her neck, choking her. She said she loved him, but she also feared him. One day, Tony was feeding their baby girl when Addis rushed into the room, ranting and raving. Tony said the expression on his face terrified her. He looked deranged. He stepped on Tony's feet, grabbed her by the hair, pulled her out of her chair, and started shaking her. The baby bottle flew out of her hand, and the baby began crying. After this incident, Tony sought an order of protection, and Addis soon filed for divorce. In August 1986, Addis demanded visitation with his children in Alaska. Jody wanted John to fly to Fairbanks to spend time with the kids, since they would soon start their school year. Addis wanted the kids to fly to Chicago, and then he planned to drive them to Michigan to visit relatives before continuing to Florida. Jody took the matter to court, demanding the visitation take place in Alaska, but the judge ordered her to put the children on a plane to visit their father. When it came time for the kids to return to Fairbanks, they weren't on the plane, and Jody and the authorities could find no sign of John or the kids. When Jody learned her kids had never boarded the flight from Chicago to Fairbanks and did not even have tickets for the flight, she knew John did what she always feared he would do. He kidnapped their children. And with all he knew and his ability to live off the grid, he would be hard to find. She was terrified, wondering what John might do with the kids, and she remembered when he threatened to load the children into his plane and fly them into a mountain. Did he plan to kill their children so she couldn't have them? Let me take a short break so I can thank the creative folks at the puzzle game app Best Fiends for sponsoring Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I appreciate your support. I've been talking about Best Fiends for the last few months, so for this episode, I decided I would describe one of my Best Fiends adventures. The level is 334. The mission is to collect nine apples and 90 mushrooms. My best fiend companions for this level are Brittle, Tantrum, Vincent, Buggles, and Vega. At first glance, this level looks fairly easy, and I know I am accompanied by strong fiends. I make a critical error, though, by not instantly noticing the shrouded rockets in the bottom corners of the game. If I'd seen them earlier, I could have used them to free the apples. Unfortunately, I still have one apple left to liberate by the end of my moves. No problem. My fiends encourage me, and I head in again. 
This time, I complete the tasks with five moves remaining. My fiends cheer as I head on to the next challenge. <laughs> Give this fun, bright, stimulating game a try. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Jody called the police and demanded they listen to her. Not only did the Fairbanks police begin to search for John and the children, but they involved law enforcement in Michigan, where John's family lived, and where Jody suspected John might be hiding the kids. Eventually, the FBI got involved in the search for John Addis and his children. Eight long months passed while Jody waited and worried about where John took her children. Finally, someone at a gym in Kalispell, Montana, recognized that the stranger exercising in the gym matched the photo of the guy in the police flyer who had abducted his four children from Alaska. The individual called the local police, and they rushed to the gym to arrest John Addis. Minutes later, authorities located the children locked in a cabin outside of Kalispell. The kids were unharmed and healthy. Addis stood trial in Fairbanks for kidnapping his children. A judge sentenced the former state trooper to four years in state prison, with two and one-half years suspended. Addis spent only 18 months in jail for his crime. Still, the prison sentence was a huge downfall for a man who was once a respected state trooper. John Patrick Addis was now a convicted felon. Addis left prison in 1988, and due to an interstate parole agreement, he was allowed to move to Fresno, California, and required to report to a California parole officer. Addis no longer seemed interested in following the law, though. In Fresno, he met a woman, moved in with her, got engaged, stole her money, and then disappeared, never again reporting to a parole officer. The woman did not report the theft to the police, so authorities had no reason to look for Addis for the crime. Instead of issuing a warrant on Addis for jumping parole, the state of California simply closed the case. The state of Alaska did issue a statewide absconder warrant, but Addis was never arrested for violating the conditions of his parole. After leaving Fresno, Addis frequently moved often working as a fitness instructor at a gym. He dated numerous women, and he met many of these women at the gyms where he worked. Addis repeated the same pattern in different cities. He'd meet a woman, lavish her with attention, tell her he loved her, promise to marry her, and then steal her money and disappear. Addis changed his identity and assumed the name John L. Edwards, a name he borrowed from a man living in Cape Coral, Florida. In 1995, John Addis, still going by the name John Edwards, moved to Las Vegas and landed a job as a fitness instructor at World's Gym. One of Edwards' female clients introduced him to a good friend, Joanne Albanese. 
Joanne had been divorced for two years and had two daughters. She also had an excellent job with the MGM Grand Resort and probably seemed like the perfect mark to Addis. Joanne and John dated for two months, and their romance quickly blossomed. Tara Rivera, the friend who introduced Joanne to John, initially prided herself for being a good matchmaker. But soon, she began to regret bringing John into Joanne's life. After only a month of dating, Addis spent most of his nights in the house with Joanne and her daughters. Joanne paid for his food, his meals when they went out to dinner, and for the gas he put into his pickup. Rivera said John worshipped Joanne, but his affection seemed unnatural. It was too much, too fast. Rivera felt John obsessed over and controlled her friend Joanne. One evening when Rivera and her husband joined John and Joanne at a restaurant for dinner, Rivera said she saw John snap. His face contorted with anger over an innocuous comment Rivera made. His eyes bulged, and he pounded his fists on the table to make his point, drawing the attention of other diners. Rivera said he looked demented, and he frightened her. When they got home, Rivera told her husband she thought there was something wrong with John, and she planned to warn her friend and tell her to dump him. When Rivera approached Joanne and expressed her concerns about John, Joanne agreed something was wrong with John. She told her friend John did not let her out of his sight and would not even let her go to the bathroom without him present. Joanne said he was smothering her, and she worried about him living in the same house with her daughters. On August 18, 1995, Joanne called Rivera and said she could not take it anymore and had decided to end her relationship with John. She planned to take him out to a nice dinner and then tell him it was over between them. Tara Rivera never heard from Joanne Albanese again. On August 18, 1995, Joanne's ex-husband, Tom, picked up their daughters for the weekend. Joanne spent the day at work and later talked to her mother on the phone, telling her she and John were planning to go to dinner that evening. John asked a co-worker to cover his shift at the gym so he could go to dinner with Joanne. On Sunday, August 20th, Tom drove his kids back to their mother's home and watched from the car as they safely entered the house. Tom saw Joanne boyfriend's truck parked in the street. Joanne's daughters noticed something was wrong as soon as they entered the house. Usually when the girls returned home after a weekend with their father, Joanne was there to greet them. And when she wasn't home, she would call to let them know she was running late. When the girls entered the house that Sunday afternoon, though, not only was their mother absent, but all the lights were on and the door to their mother's bedroom was open wide, her bed unmade. Joanne always made her bed and locked her bedroom door when she wasn't home. She also made it a point to turn off the lights when she left her room. The girls checked the garage and saw Joanne's car was gone. They then looked in their mother's dresser drawers and found both the bracelet Joanne wore daily and her purse, still in the drawer where she kept them when she was home. She never left the house without her purse. 
The girls called their father and then called the police. At first, the authorities were not concerned about Joanne's absence. As the days passed, however, Joanne's family convinced the police Joanne would never abandon her daughters without telling them where she was going, and she would also not leave them alone overnight. Joanne's family immediately suspected Joanne's new boyfriend had something to do with her disappearance. Her oldest daughter said Joanne and John yelled at each other often, and she described John as creepy. Joanne's sister said she never liked John and felt he was only interested in her sister for her money. Joanne's sister asked Detective Hannah with the Las Vegas Police Department if she could look through John's pickup truck. Since Hannah was busy with what he considered higher-priority cases, he gave Joanne's sister permission to look through John's truck. What she found in the camper shell of the truck finally convinced police to take a harder look at John Edwards. In Edwards' truck, Joanne's sister found several IDs from other men, as well as two license plates and tags from Washington and Florida. An envelope in the vehicle bore the name John Addis. Hannah ran the current plate and tag on the truck and found the tag was not registered to anyone. Hannah soon discovered Edwards was not John's last name. When he traced the name John Addis, he learned John Patrick Addis was an ex-felon from Alaska. Furthermore, Addis was once an Alaska state trooper. Hannah now knew he was trailing not only a dangerous man, but also an ex-cop who had the skills to cover his tracks and avoid capture. On August 23, 1995, a hiker found Joanne's gold Honda in a remote part of Little Hell Canyon in Arizona, but the car yielded few clues. Investigators found no body, no bloodstains, and no bodily fluids in the automobile. Detectives believed if John killed Joanne, he most likely dumped her body in the area where, they, where he left the car. They'd searched a nearby shallow lake, but found nothing. They then combed the wilderness around the lake, but again discovered no sign of Joanne's body. Even without her body, though, Detective Hannah now felt certain John Patrick Addis murdered Joanne Albanese and ditched her car in Little Hell Canyon, Arizona, only three hours from the Mexican border. In late 1996, a man who called himself John Stone walked into Gold's Gym in Guadalajara, Mexico. Stone had blonde hair and green eyes. He was big and muscular and very friendly. He soon made friends at the gym and dated numerous women. He lived with people he met, and some even gave him money because they felt sorry for him. Stone found work as a tennis instructor and also taught English and gave piano lessons. Stone began dating 25-year-old Laura Liliana Casillas Padilla, the daughter of an engineer in Guadalajara. Laura Liliana met Stone at Gold's Gym, and he charmed his way into her life. 
She brought him home to meet her family, but her father thought they were just friends because Stone was so much older than his daughter. In March 1997, a segment about John Patrick Addis and his suspected complicity in the disappearance of Joanne Albanese in Las Vegas aired on the Geraldo television show. A tipster called the show and reported seeing a man matching the description of Addis at a Gold's Gym in Guadalajara, Mexico. When the manager of the gym told Stone a woman called the gym looking for someone who fit his description, Addis, a.k.a. Stone, decided it was time to leave. When Laura Liliana Casillas Padilla did not show up for work or contact her family, they began to worry about her. Her sister went to her apartment, but although her belongings were still there, she saw no sign of Laura Liliana. After searching the apartment, her sister found a note on the floor. The note was from Laura Liliana to her family. She told them she loved them, but it was time for her to leave. She said John proposed to her and she accepted. She told her family she was okay and promised to call them soon. Her family never heard from her again. In October 1998, three years after she disappeared, a hunter found the remains of Joanne Albanese in the mountains near where Joanne's car had been found in Little Hell Canyon, Arizona. Addis apparently used his remarkable strength to carry Joanne's body up a mountain to dispose of it. Authorities did not search the mountains near Little Hell Canyon because they didn't think a human could carry a body up such a steep incline, especially in the Arizona heat. The discovery of Joanne's body left no doubt that John Addis murdered her before escaping to Mexico. Since her remains were only bones, the medical examiner could not determine the cause of her death. John Patrick Addis made the FBI's list of the ten most wanted in America. The television show, America's Most Wanted, aired the story of John Patrick Addis and the murder of Joanne Albanese eight times between November 1998 and May 2005. Other shows also covered the case and asked the public for information regarding the whereabouts of Addis. John Patrick Addis and his wife, Laura Liliana, moved to Tutsla Gutierrez, Chiapas, Mexico, sometime in 1997. Chiapas, the southernmost state in Mexico, borders Guatemala to the east. Addis now called himself J. Charles Peterson, he worked at a variety of jobs, including tutoring the sons of the police chief. He also instructed tennis at a local resort. He and Laura Liliana had two children, and although most of their neighbors described Addis as a good father, a few neighbors noticed he seemed very controlling over Laura Liliana. On October 18, 2006, Nine years after he and Laura Liliana fled Guadalajara, their neighbors in Chiapas realized they had not seen Addis and his family in several days. 
When they went to the Addis apartment to check on the residents, they noticed a horrible smell seeping from the apartment. They called the police, who broke into the home and found Laura Liliana dead on her bed and the bodies of the two children on their beds. Police also found more than 20 syringes near Laura Liliana's body. An autopsy showed Laura Liliana and her children died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Police believed J. Charles Peterson, whose real name they soon learned was John Patrick Addis, murdered his wife and children and then fled. Mexican authorities began searching for Addis. Several weeks later, a maid at a hotel in Guatemala City discovered the body of a man on a bed in a hotel room. Identification in the room belonged to John Charles Stone, age 46. The body had been in the hotel room for some time, and an autopsy listed the cause of death as a heart attack. An investigation soon revealed the dead man was John Patrick Addis, a fugitive wanted since 1995 for murder, kidnapping, and other charges. Investigators contacted Detective Larry Hanna in Las Vegas with the news, and Hanna wondered if Addis murdered someone who looked like him to fake his death. A fingerprint match, though, left no doubt the dead man was John Addis. He had avoided capture and died on his terms, whether from natural causes or suicide. Addis was buried in Guatemala. John Patrick Addis was a monster who needed to control his world and those around him. He seemed to function well during his years as an Alaska state trooper in Fairbanks. He managed to cope as long as he kept his wife and kids imprisoned in a one-room cabin. When his wife left him, though, his world began to unravel. After his incarceration for kidnapping his children, Addis moved constantly, leaving a path of destruction in his wake. Authorities feel it is likely Addis killed Joanne Albanese because she was strong-willed and feisty and refused to let him manipulate her. Did he murder Laura Liliana and their children because she decided to leave him and move back to Guadalajara near her family? His brilliant mind and his training in forensic crime scene investigations while he worked for the Alaska State Troopers made Addis a difficult criminal to track and capture. He always managed to stay one step ahead of the authorities. Thank you for listening, and thank you to my patrons. I appreciate you. Be sure to check out my show notes to learn more about this episode and how you can support this podcast by joining the Last Frontier Club. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.